What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, we get into the weeds of some of the Biden administration's immigration policies and proposals, including one that would house Haitian refugees at Guantanamo. We'll speak with journalist Gabby Del Valle. This is all just part of a broader deterrence scheme that is aimed at preventing people from accessing the asylum system. It's almost a slap in the face to asylum seekers because there's this entire message of we will protect your human rights if you you manage to get here, but you cannot get here. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. We're only a few years into the Biden administration, but federal immigration policy under his leadership is impacting communities heavily. Today, we'll focus on two stories about how the U.S. is wielding immigration policy. First, a real plan on the table to house detained and undocumented migrants in the notorious Guantanamo Bay prison. Then we'll talk about a specific policy called temporary protective status that's being seen in court after the Trump administration basically threw it out. My guest today is Gabby Del Valle, a freelance immigration journalist who has reported for The Nation, Vice, and The Daily Beast, among others. Gabby co-authors an illuminating weekly newsletter about immigration policy called Borderlines. Gabby, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So the first story I want to dive into with you is a potential new policy from the Biden administration that would house Haitian immigrants in Guantanamo Bay, the notorious U.S. prison that's in Cuba, or potentially in other countries in the area. It's a policy that's referred to as a lily pad policy. Gabby, what do we know about this proposal so far? But there appear to be two proposals here, one of which is to, as you mentioned, send Haitians to a third country while their claims are processed in the U.S., and another one is to house them in Guantanamo during that same time period. Um, it was reported by NBC News the administration is considering doing this. Um, it's not clear whether that will actually lead to it being done. But all of that is to say that there is a real possibility that this might happen. The interesting thing about this is that it's actually not unprecedented. And in fact, in the 90s, um, Haitian immigrants or Haitian migrants were also detained in Guantanamo. Um, When it was done in the 90s, it was primarily, or I believe actually almost entirely, Haitian migrants who were intercepted at sea. And I think this would be the same kind of situation where Haitians who attempt to reach the U.S. by boat or other kind of naval vessels are interdicted at sea by the Coast Guard. And then rather than being admitted into the United States for, you know, processing so that they can apply for asylum, they would either be, I'm not sure because the details are so scant right now, if they would be detained in Guantanamo while that process is undergoing, or if they would just be detained in Guantanamo. But the U.S. has also attempted to have different iterations of third country agreements uh, in the past, most recently under Donald Trump, although those were a bit different because with those third country agreements, um, there was one with Guatemala, one with El Salvador, and one with Honduras. And I believe only the one with Guatemala ever went into effect. Um, Asylum seekers who reached the U.S. were then sent to Guatemala instead, not while their claims were being processed in the U.S., but to apply for asylum in Guatemala. 
And then there was another policy um, called the Migrant Protection Protocols, also implemented under Trump, which did require some asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their claims were processed in the U.S. So there is precedent for this, um, but all of these policies have been characterized by pretty rampant human rights violations. Um, with Remain in Mexico in particular, there have been numerous reports of migrants being kidnapped or extorted or threatened while waiting in Mexico. Um, and it is not unreasonable to suggest that a similar policy applied to Haitians, if they were to have to wait in a third country, would do the same thing. As for Guantanamo, um, I mean, I think it's really evident um, and probably self-explanatory enough to say that housing asylum seekers in Guantanamo Bay was a massive violation of their human rights. I mean, people in immigration detention, this is not even the, ma the most major concern, but people in immigration detention who are undergoing um, deportation proceedings, or really anybody undergoing deportation proceedings, isn't entitled to free government appointed counsel if they can't afford their own because immigration is a civil procedure and not a criminal one which means that if you're detained in the United States, you have to be able to find a lawyer on your own from detention. If you're detained in Guantanamo Bay, I'm not really sure how anyone would do that. And again, that's just scratching the surface. There's also all of the allegations of abuse and mistreatment at Guantanamo Bay on top of that. Um, but yeah, right now this is a proposal. It's it's very possible that the administration will receive sufficient backlash and won't implement it, but I think it's a bit too soon to say. Well, there's many things from your statements just now that I want to follow up on, but, but first I want to just bring it back to Haiti for a second. We've spent time on this show about the current situation in Haiti where groups referred to as gangs have taken control of some areas and in some contexts violence has been used pretty indiscriminately against folks. Haiti doesn't often make global news headlines, but the big push recently was because the UN Security Council was considering armed intervention on the island nation. Gabby, you were saying that this proposal for uh, potentially housing Haitian migrants caught at sea at Guantanamo Bay or another lily pad country is specifically built for Haitian migrants. Um, Usually when I've learned about immigration policy, it's been aimed at geographies, as in people crossing the border from a certain side, like from Mexico to the U.S. Southwest. Why are we creating immigration policies potentially specifically for Haiti right now? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a few different reasons for that, one of which is that given the recent situation in Haiti, um, there has been a significant increase in Haitians attempting to seek asylum in the United States. And both the Trump and the Biden administration have responded to that with exclusion primarily. Um, Title 42, uh, the policy that was implemented in March 2020 that allows uh, border officers to expel migrants either back to Mexico or to their country of origin on public health grounds remains in place. And you know, famously, um, there were a group of Haitian migrants in Del Rio, Texas, who were charged at by Border Patrol agents on horses. Um, and who, that made, you know, national headlines because of the way that those particular migrants were mistreated. But then at the same time, and for months preceding that, 
um, DHS was expelling Haitians both to Mexico and also flying them directly to Haiti. Um, for both administrations, um, these policies are a matter of deterrence. Um, when they notice a significant increase in people from a certain country, either at the border or in the case of Haitian migrants, both at the U.S.-Mexico border and arriving by sea, they often attempt to craft policies to keep those particular groups of migrants from reaching the U.S. Sometimes the policies are explicit. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're not even actually U.S. policies at all. Um, for example, Mexico, which is the primary transit country for U.S.-bound migrants who arrive by land, has recently implemented visa controls for places that didn't previously have them, including Brazil um, and I believe Ecuador, though I'm not 100% sure on that, because people from those countries and other countries in South America were flying to Mexico to then cross the border into the U.S. So at the urging of the Biden administration, Mexico implemented these visa controls to prevent those nationalities from reaching Mexico, thereby like creating a deterrent effect. My question now, though, is if this policy were to be put into effect, would it discriminate related to Haitian immigrants versus other people who were intercepted at sea trying to migrate from, say, another Caribbean nation? Yeah, I'm okay. So I'm not sure exactly how the policy would be implemented, but if we look at ways that similar policies have been implemented in the past, um, in the 80s, the Reagan administration started intercepting Haitian bound or Haitian vessels at sea um, and inspecting them for U.S. bound migrants. And then in the 90s, um, the Immigration and Naturalization Service actually started detaining U.S. bound Haitians on Guantanamo Bay um, and even had a special camp on Guantanamo for Haitians, some of whom had actually been granted asylum, but were HIV positive because there were laws at the time preventing people from being admitted into the U.S. if they were HIV positive. So, so there is precedent for targeting Haitians in this particular way that I believe the administration can point to. But then at the same time, like those policies were were ended because of significant backlash, because of, you know, accusations of, I'm going to start that over. But at the same time, those policies were were ended because of significant backlash and also because of um, allegations of discrimination, of mistreatment. So, so even though there is precedent, there is also precedent for, for the opposition. We are in conversation with Gabby Del Valle, a freelance immigration journalist who contributes to a weekly newsletter about immigration policy called Borderlines. Gabby, earlier in this conversation, you referenced an earlier policy, I think, under the Trump administration, where we had a lily pad agreement with Guatemala and we were holding people uh, there as their asylum claims were pending. Is that right? No, no, no. So there was a, an agreement with Mexico to hold people there as their asylum claims were processed. And then there was a separate agreement with Guatemala to send asylum seekers there so that they would be required to apply for asylum in Guatemala rather than the United States. There's a, a policy or a requirement called non-refoulement, which is basically non-return, which means that you cannot send people back to the place that they're fleeing without kind of an accurate hearing as to whether they are deserving of asylum or refugee status, which means that if somebody 
is from Guatemala and they're claiming asylum under this, you cannot send them back to Guatemala. So then instead, what the Trump administration attempted to do was send people from El Salvador and people from Honduras to Guatemala. They would say, well, you can't seek asylum in the US, you can seek asylum in Guatemala. Um, I guess a a more pertinent example might be um, Canada and the United States have what's called a safe third country agreement, which is what the US tried to implement with Guatemala. Um, And the underlying logic of that agreement is that both countries are equally safe. And um, a person seeking asylum should therefore be required to apply for asylum in whichever country they reach first. It's intended to prevent what's called venue shopping. Um, I think a more a more pertinent comparison to this proposal would be the Remain in Mexico policy, which essentially forced asylum seekers to wait in Mexico indefinitely as the U.S. processed their asylum claims. We we know there's one side of the policy that could be, or proposal that could be to house people at Guantanamo, but the other side of it could be to house folks or to send folks to another country. Do we have any idea what life looks like on a daily basis for someone awaiting that? Let's take Guantanamo out of the equation for a moment because we know that's mm-hmm. a prison. There's not much l- daily life and culture going on in that space. But if we were to use one of these lily pad agreements, what does life look like for someone who's awaiting that? And does that look similar to, as you described, the Remain in Mexico folks who are stuck in the Remain in Mexico program? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think I think Remain in Mexico would be the best comparison here. Um, and under Remain in Mexico, migrants were were effectively stranded. Um, it couldn't be applied to people from Mexico because, again, that would violate this principle of non-return. So Remain in Mexico was, was applied to people from Spanish-speaking countries. So Guatemalans, Salvadorans, Hondurans, um, people from South America. Eventually, it was also expanded to in, uh, include Brazilians and to Haitians mm-hmm. as well in some cases. Um, and because people had to cross into the United States to attend their asylum hearings. They were pretty much required to stay in border cities. Um, A lot of cities on the Mexican side of the U.S.-Mexico border are unfortunately um, right now suffering from incredibly violent conditions, often due to cartel turf wars or gang violence. And migrants were seen as kind of easy targets for for the cartels and for gangs. Um, They were often extorted because there was this idea that migrants had family in the United States who would be willing to pay ransom, which in some cases was true, but in other cases wasn't. They were often subject to to violence, physical violence, sexual violence, um, because of their vulnerable status. And, um, you know, some people did find places to live. Some people lived in apartments. Other people had to live in shelters run by uh, nonprofits, churches, humanitarian aid groups, and other people were just living in encampments on the street. Um, So it wasn't, they weren't living in good conditions. And again, like, since we don't know any of the details of what is being considered, we don't know if even what country it might be, if people were to be given shelter, or if they would be given jobs during this time, we really have no idea. But looking at Remain in Mexico, in previous times where administrations have attempted to kind of 
create these almost open air prisons where migrants aren't detained, but they are confined to a specific space and are their, their daily lives are curtailed. People have not fared well. So this, of course, all relates to the asylum process that some migrants seek to get in order to live uh, in, in the U.S. I wanted to ask you more about that because in your newsletter, you also wrote that the ability to make an asylum claim is available only to those on U.S. soil. Um, how does that work for someone who, say, is intercepted at sea coming from Haiti trying to get asylum in the U.S. and then sent somewhere else entirely? Mm-hmm. So um, there's this really great book called Refuge Beyond Reach by David Scott Fitzgerald, which effectively argues that ever since the creation of this international asylum scheme, the countries that receive asylum seekers, so, you know, the U.S., the EU member states, Australia, have said, you know, we uphold human rights, we uphold the right to seek asylum, while at the same time creating this complex system of deterrence that prevents people from reaching soil of those countries so that they can't file asylum claims. Um, This is really important because asylum status, unlike refugee status, requires you to be in the country so that you can ask for it. Refugees have to be people who are are displaced or applying for refugee camps. They go through the United Nations. There's a years-long process. Most refugees are never resettled. Whereas asylum seekers, they they have to arrive in the place first and then ask for asylum. Um, and as a quick aside, when we look at the number of people coming to the border, there's often this idea um, from from conservative pundits that they say, well, why aren't they doing it the right way? But the, the right way to seek asylum is to arrive on the soil of that country and ask for asylum. Um, anyway, uh, so to answer your question, this is all just part of a broader deterrence scheme that is aimed at preventing people from accessing the asylum system. The interception of boats at sea is part of that. The um, fortifying of the border by you know building a wall, hiring more border patrol agents is part of that. Um, policies like remain in Mexico are part of that. And so is Title 42. And kind of looked at together, it's... It's almost a slap in the face to asylum seekers because there's this entire message of like, we will protect your human rights and of this if you if you manage to get here, but you cannot get here. Um, we are in conversation with Gabby Del Valle, a freelance immigration journalist who contributes to a weekly newsletter about immigration policy called Borderlines. Now, Gabby, we're going to shift gears in a minute to talk about temporary protective status, but I I wanted to ask one more question. We started the conversation, you kind of started the conversation discussing the historical precedent um, of potentially housing Haitians, Haitian immigrants or asylum seekers elsewhere, maybe at Guantanamo specifically. Can you talk a little bit more about that history? How has this country dealt with that pretty specific situation in the past? Mm -hmm. So in the, the 60s and 70s, um, the United States started receiving an influx of migrants, not only from Haiti, um, but also from Cuba, and then later in the 80s and 90s, also people from El Salvador and Guatemala. And the common denominator of all of these people was that they were fleeing 
in unstable situations, violent regimes, repression in their home countries. But the treatment that they received was really, really different. So for example, like 99% of Cuban asylum claims during that time were approved, while most asylum claims for Salvadorans and Guatemalans were denied. And for Haitians, not only were their claims denied, um, but the INS and immigration officials on from both parties maintained that Haitians were primarily economic migrants. So in the 80s, the Reagan administration implemented this policy of intercepting Haitian votes at sea. They reached an agreement with the Duvalier regime that any Haitians who were found at sea, found not to be asylum seekers, and then returned to Haiti wouldn't be prosecuted for leaving Haiti, which from the administration standpoint was proof that people were free to leave Haiti and would not be punished. But the fact that they even had to get that kind of affirmative that they wouldn't be punished suggests that people were in fact being punished for doing just that before. Um, And then starting in the 90s, the Immigration and Naturalization Service started detaining Haitians on Guantanamo Bay. I believe that was in 1991. And by 1993, they had stopped doing so. And throughout this this time period, you know, different nationalities were receiving different types of treatment. Cuban migrants were, were generally favored and welcomed and their claims were granted, while Haitians and um, people from Central America were kind of derided as economic migrants and not people fleeing repression. And all that really had to do with who the U.S.'s allies were and who its ideological opponents were. But then later on, um, in, I believe, 1996, this policy called, often known as wet foot, dry foot, was implemented where, yeah, effectively, the INS had this memo that said, if migrants of any nationality are intercepted at sea, then they have not, that does not constitute an arrival on U.S. soil, and they can be returned to their country of origin without undergoing any kind of deportation proceeding um, or having to apply for asylum. However, anybody who makes it onto dry land would, quote, acquire the status of applicants for admission and would have to be inspected and screened. Um, or, or that means that, you know, finding people before they made it into onto dry land, so while they were still at sea, was an important part of this deterrence regime um, because the goal was to keep people from accessing the immigration legal system at all by preventing them from reaching U.S. land. And how much does current policy reflect what you're referring to as wet foot, dry foot? Um, wet foot, dry foot ended in 2017, but there are just broader deterrence policies in place that I've mentioned. So it's, it's kind of an interlocking system in which every deterrent, every possible deterrent is put in place to prevent people from reaching the United States. Some of those deterrents are policies like... Um, Title 42 or like remain in Mexico. Others are policies like um, the safe third country agreements that the Trump administration tried to reach with Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And it's not just about physically preventing people from reaching the United States. It's also about creating this kind of rumor mill or whisper network among people who are bound for the US, where if they, the idea is if they hear that it's very difficult, then they won't come. Another major component of this is um, a policy implemented by the Border Patrol in the 90s called Prevention Through Deterrence, which was effectively a plan to funnel people 
into the most remote and dangerous parts of the desert. Because the idea was if migrants think that they're going to die, they won't come. If migrants realize how inhospitable the conditions are, they won't come. What has happened instead is that people have not been deterred, just they have been dying year after year by the hundreds in the desert. And these deterrence policies are still in place despite all of that. It's humbling to think about the reality that that some migrants have to go through to try to to try to experience something different. We are in conversation with Gabby Del Valle, a freelance immigration journalist who contributes to a weekly newsletter about immigration policy called Borderlines. Gabby, I want to shift gears and talk about another story that you've been focusing on in the immigration world. This one gets a little bit into the weeds of policy, but it seems really interesting to dive into current immigration policy under the Biden administration and how different presidential administrations have taken pretty varied approaches, at least in recent past. The policy we're talking about is called temporary protective status, which is a policy that was basically given bipartisan support for its first three decades until a certain president, yes, that's Trump, decided to leave it by the wayside. And now, the lawsuits challenging Trump's decision are in court. Gabby, help me out so far. Was that an accurate description of where we are at with temporary protective status? Yes. The lawsuit right now um, is in negotiations. Um, it's it's really unclear what the details of those negotiations are, but the upshot of it is basically if some kind of agreement isn't reached, then hundreds of thousands of people who have temporary protective status may be ordered to leave the country in a period of months. So we're going to get a little bit more into the details around that. But before we do, what is temporary protective status for folks who are totally unfamiliar with it? What is it and why was it created in the first place? So Temporary Protective Status, or TPS, was created in 1990 as part of the Immigration Act of 1990. And it's effectively, as the name suggests, a temporary status given to shield people from certain countries from deportation due to emergencies in that country, whether it be a natural disaster, um, a a war, um, or just broader kinds of instability. There has to be a reason for the designation. So for example, um, Kuwait and Lebanon both got TPS designation in 1991 um, because they had been invaded. Um, And then eventually Lebanon status expired the following year. um, And people from Somalia received temporary protective status in 1991 as well. And their status has actually been consistently renewed. And it just kind of comes down to First, there has to be a precipitating event that triggers this TPS designation. Um, And then there is a consideration of whether the situation has improved, in which case the TPS status is no longer extended, or whether either that situation has continued or other situations have made it untenable for people to return. And crucially, TPS applies to people who are already in the United States at the time of designation. So it applies to people who are undocumented. It applies to people who may be on temporary visas. Um, And it basically says, you know, like, we are granting you this, again, temporary status given these exceptional circumstances. So if tomorrow, for example, the president were to declare TPS for, um, 
I don't know, England or the United Kingdom, you know, people wouldn't be able to come from the UK to get protection. They would, it would only apply to people here from the UK already. I, I think the example of the UK is great. I was going to return to the conversation about Haiti um, because Haiti is a country in crisis right now and the US does seem to be potentially acknowledging it with the potential for Haitians wanting to come to the US. But just to be clear, temporary protective status would not impact folks who are trying to leave Haiti to come to the US if the U.S. government were to declare temporary protective status for Haitians. Exactly. So temporary protective status would only apply to people who are already in the United States. And in fact, Haiti does have temporary protective status, but that only applies to people who are all who are already here at the time of designation. So Haiti, I want to continue down this example for a moment. Haiti has had various crises for many, many years, particularly because of, as we know, the the debts that have been forced onto them because of their decolonization movement. But um, does temporary protective status only apply to Haitians who are already in this country during one particular crisis? No. So temporary protective status applies to people who are already in this country at or before the time of designation. So for example, currently to be eligible for TPS, um, if you are from Haiti, you have had to continuously reside in the U.S. since July 29th, 2021, um, because the TPS status was first granted on August 3rd. Does that make sense? So, So basically when they grant TPS status, it's kind of a, a blanket coverage of people who are already here. It's saying, we know you're here. We know the situation in Haiti is devolving and that you cannot return. So because you can't return, we will grant you a temporary reprieve from potential deportation. That's not to say that people who are already in deportation proceedings will be granted TPS. It's more just like, if you, ha- if you happen to be an undocumented Haitian person who had been living in this country already, then you could apply for TPS. But if you are a person in Haiti who wants to come to the United States, TPS does not benefit you. It has really nothing to do with you. And if you migrate without paperwork to the U.S., if you're Haitian and migrate without paperwork to the U.S., since the initial TPS was declared, even if there's more ongoing crises in Haiti, in your home country, you still cannot have access to it. Is that right? Exactly. Unless there were to be a new designation of TPS where they were to say people who have been here since X date. So how does a country or or how does U.S. policy change to create a new TPS des- designation? So basically, the um, Secretary of Homeland Security can grant TPS to nationals of any country at any given time. Um, and then Homeland Security chooses whether or not to redesignate those countries for TPS after the initial designation has expired. Um, so for example, um, a good example is El Salvador, which first received TPS in March, 2001, um, because of a series of earthquakes and 
then that status has been redesignated over and over and over again. Um, and that means that people who already had TPS could, could extend their TPS, um, which means that people who have TPS because of the earthquakes in El Salvador have had it now for 21 years. But if you are a newly arrived immigrant from El Salvador, that TPS designation doesn't apply to you. So I warned listeners at the beginning of this part of the conversation that we're getting a little bit into the weeds, but I think the weeds are actually really useful to understand how our country is relating to people who are coming here from somewhere where crisis is happening. I also said earlier that I think the history of temporary protective status being specifically kind of a an agreed upon bipartisan issue is really interesting up until, of course, the Trump administration. In, in 2022, it's almost hard to see anything as bipartisan these days. Can you walk us through some more of that history up until when that changed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so TPS was created under the administration of George H.W. Bush. Um, and the first few TPS designations were um, in response to several wars. There was um, 1991, both Lebanon and Iraq got, or no, sorry, in 1991, both Lebanon and Kuwait got TPS because Iraq invaded Kuwait. In 1992, Bosnia got TPS because of the Bosnian Civil War. Um, under um, the Clinton administration, Honduras and Nicaragua got TPS because of uh, Hurricane Mitch. Under George W. Bush, um, El Salvador got TPS because of earthquakes. Under Obama, um, Haiti and Syria and Sudan all got TPS because of various conflicts, um, and in Haiti's case, because of an earthquake. Um, and it's not just the designation of TPS, it's also the decision to renew. So for example, Somalia got TPS status in 1991, and it was their status was then continuously extended under subsequent presidential administrations under Republican administrations and Democratic administrations. The Trump administration was was really the only one who was really actively hostile to TPS. Um, you know, there's immigration has has actually been this bipartisan effort for a really long time where both parties have, in some cases, in the case of TPS, for example, been willing to to grant protection to certain populations. But at the same time, like both parties have also been very willing to expand the detention system to expand Border Patrol's power. Um, under Trump, I believe that was really the first kind of fracturing of this bipartisan system of, of immigration, um, where largely because of the influence of one of his top advisors, Stephen Miller, um, they had what was called this America first, quote unquote, kind of white supremacist view of immigration. Trump famously, you know, said that people from certain countries were from whole countries. And there was this entire idea that they had to prevent those people from being in the U.S. if they were already here, from reaching the U.S. if they weren't. And revoking TPS status was a really big part of that. So I want to bring us all the way into the present. One of the reasons that we're having this conversation about temporary protective status is specifically because there's lawsuits against Trump's policies in court right now. Now, many of the details of these lawsuits are still private, 
um, we don't know all the details, but to your mind, what do the potential outcomes of these lawsuits say about the Biden administration's immigration policy? Yeah, so I, I just wanted to rewind really quickly. Um, the, the reason for these lawsuits is that um, the Trump administration tried to revoke TPS for several countries, Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Haiti, um, Nepal. And the idea was not only to end TPS for these countries, but also to change the way that TPS is renewed. So instead of renewing it, because although the initial conflict or disaster may have ended, but there is still other instability under the new redesignation criteria, it had to be the same problem. So for example, if a country was granted TPS because of a hurricane, and 15 years later, the hurricane cleanup had been completed, but there was a civil war, then it doesn't matter if there's a civil war because the initial designation was because of a hurricane. Um, and um, in 2018, the lawsuit against, there were two lawsuits against Trump's attempt to end TPS, basically alleging that both these efforts were um, the result of racial animus um, and that they were a violation of both the Due Process Clause of the Amendment and the Administrative Procedure Act, um, which just basically means that they were made without kind of a proper implementation period. And there was uh, an internal memo um, from former DHS Secretary Elaine Duke that said that TPS has to end for these countries soon because of the America first view of the TPS decision. So these lawsuits are currently in negotiation. The Biden administration has had this really strange ambivalent view towards Trump's immigration policies, because on the one hand, it did end on running the, or, sorry, it on the one hand, it did run on ending these policies, you know, on stopping the wall construction, on ending MPP, on um, ending the Muslim ban, things like that. And it has ended a lot of the Trump administration's policies. But on the other hand, the the reports of the negotiations breaking down suggest that the negotiations regarding the TPS lawsuit have, have maybe been contentious. Um, and there have been other policies that have been left in place, like Title 42. So it's it's kind of a, a mixed bag that shows the inherent contradictions and most likely the internal conflicts of the Biden administration with regards to immigration policy. And then there's the fact that, you know, Congress has not passed any kind of legislation that would grant a more permanent status to people with TPS. When Biden first took office, he sent a really comprehensive immigration bill to his allies in Congress that actually included a path to citizenship for people with DACA and people with TPS. But that bill stalled for several reasons. It pretty much went nowhere. Negotiations of any kind of immigration reform at the congressional level have completely broken down. So I, and I guess that leads us to where we are today. Um, I, I think a lot of the time, the attention gets shifted to the numbers of people arriving at the border. Um, and then the administration gets put in this kind of defensive posture, where then it almost feels like it has to make concessions in other arenas. But again, like, given that I don't know the actual details of the negotiations, I am just speculating a bit. So you said just now, usually we end up focusing on the number of people actually arriving at the border, which may or may not have direct implications about U.S. immigration 
policy, what should we be focusing on as people who are trying to stay abreast of our country's immigration policies? What kinds of things can we use to track real differences b- between various administrations or, or how our country is is relating to people who are trying to get asylum or a better life? Mm-hmm. So I think I think the number of people arriving at the border is it is important, but I also think that the the numbers alone don't tell the whole story. Um, you know, we keep seeing news about record highs at the border, and that is true in one sense because you know um, people are fleeing really dangerous circumstances. But it also isn't entirely true in another sense because since Title Forty Two, that expulsion policy is still in place. Um, somebody who is expelled under Title 42 and crosses again, each time they cross, that is counted as an encounter at the border. Um, So while there are a lot of people attempting to reach the US right now, that is not, these numbers aren't a sign of an open or a porous border. And in fact, the Biden administration is, in many ways with regards to border policy, behaving kind of like the Trump administration, Um, A federal judge ordered it to keep Title 42 in place after it uh, attempted to lift it. But the Biden administration hasn't just kept it in place. It's also expanded it to include other nationalities, including Venezuelans. It's creating or it's discussing implementing policies to target Haitians and prevent them from reaching the U.S. as well. I think focusing on just the number of people at the border to suggest that the border is open or that the Biden administration's policies have been more welcoming or less harmful than Trump's. Which doesn't create a lot of optimism. Are there places in either U.S. border policy or in things other than U.S. border policy that are affecting the lives of migrants that do give you some optimism? I think, you know, um, there are a lot of groups at the local or grassroots level who are trying to fight these policies. Um, and they are doing good work despite being up against a wall. I mean, I live in New York and, you know, they're like very famously, Texas has been busing migrants to New York. Um, Florida flew people to, to Martha's Vineyard to create this illusion that, you know, Liberal cities don't actually want to help migrants and they don't care about the porousness of the border. But in fact, there's been a lot of local organizing to to get people shelter, to get people resources, um, to get people like immediate help. But and, and that does give me hope. But at the same time, like those organizers are in a reactive posture because more structurally, if you're an asylum seeker, you can't get a work permit for six months, you know? Um, you can't really start to build your life here because of the way that these policies are structured at the federal level. Um, And I think what is kind of concerning to me is that the Biden administration has accepted the untrue argument that the border is both open and that the border is out of control and has kind of completely ceded ground on that. And At the same time, while Republicans are claiming that the border is open, the administration is is really attempting to keep more people from reaching the U.S., not just to to manage the amount of people who come here, but to appeal to to people who are never going to support 
Democrats anyway. So I would like to, as we end this conversation, I would like to hold on to that call as we do on this show very frequently for an appreciation of the folks at the grassroots level who are trying to hold things down amid policies that may not take care of our people so well. Gabby, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so sorry if any of that was too in the weeds. You're great. Gabby Del Valle is a freelance immigration journalist who has reported for The Nation, Vice, and The Daily Beast, among others. Gabby co-authors an illuminating weekly newsletter about immigration policy called Borderlines. You can find out more and subscribe to Borderlines by clicking the link on our show notes at kpfa.org or on our social media at Law and Dis. That's D-I-S. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>